Okay, um, well last week we started in on page 37 in a, uh, having a heavy conversation about the effects of salvation, talking about, uh, we actually didn't even really get to uh, heaven and hell too much yet, um, we were talking about Sheol, but how about I pray and then we'll review some of what we uh, talked about last week, okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies, and you are near to the brokenhearted. God, we ask that today as we look into your word that we'd all be encouraged, that we'd all be reminded of the truth that makes a difference in this life, that we would all be affected by your word. God, help us today to serve you well, to honor you rightly in the way that we think, in the way that we live. Help us to uh, really grow closer to you because of the time we spend here together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, again, last week we talked about Sheol and the uh, different compartments. That's really not a great word, but uh, that's the word I'm using. So, compartments of Sheol. Let's uh, recreate a little bit. Recreate a little bit about what we looked at last week. What does the word Sheol mean? Anybody remember? Sheol, what that word means? Or, I don't know, something approximate to the definition? Okay. Sometimes, yes, sometimes it meant another name for the place of where the wicked go. That's true. It also, though, was a place for... Where the righteous would go, okay, where, where the good would go. And the, the word just literally means grave, okay? It means grave. It's just, Sheol is the realm of the dead. That's what we learn in the Old Testament. But as we got into the New Testament, when Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16, we learned that Sheol wasn't just one big place where everybody was in the same spot, but there were two different Again, not a great word, but compartments. And what are those compartments? Okay. So there's Abraham's bosom. And what was Abraham's bosom characterized by? What did, the, what did Lazarus experience there? Good. Comfort. Comfort. And what's the, um, the other compartment? Hades. And what is Hades characterized by? What did the rich man experience? Good torment. There was uh, uh, fire. Remember he said he just wants a drop of water on his tongue. He was experiencing the fire of Hades. And both of these are um, conscious. Okay, so in both places, the people had memory, the people had uh, an understanding of what was going on around them. It was not a place of being asleep, it wasn't a place of uh, having your brain shut off or something like that, but it was conscious, either comfort or conscious torment. What separated the two, Abraham's bosom and, and uh, Hades? What, what, is, what separated the two? Okay, a chasm separated the two. And even though it was a chasm, 
they were able to communicate across the chasm. Okay? Now, they weren't able to, uh, there's no indication at all they were able to like, move across the chasm. There was no, like, I'm in Hades for a while, then I go to Abraham's bosom, or vice versa. There was none of that. But there was communication. So uh, that was interesting, that you could have Abraham talking from up here to the rich man who was down here. They were able to communicate. Um, And what did Abraham say to the rich man whenever the rich man said, I've got five brothers, I don't want them to come here. Can someone like Lazarus go back and tell them? What did Abraham say? Yes. He, he essentially said, look, they've got the word of God. They, if they won't hear the word of God, if they won't believe the word of God, then they're not going to believe even if someone comes back from the dead. And of course, uh, that's the case, right? Because Jesus himself came back from the dead and people still rejected him. People still rejected the word of God. And so this is what we covered last week from Luke 16. So if you missed that, this is all in Luke 16. Um, If you weren't here for last week's study, you can go listen to it or just do a little study yourself of Luke chapter 16. That's where all that is found, okay? Any questions, any thoughts or questions as we just consider a little review there? Jen? Yes. It's a a three-pack Oh, wow, wow. We got people jumping up all over. My goodness. Okay. Well, we'll just leave those other ones around just in case anyone else needs them. Um, anything else about this? Good. Okay. Well, still, there's a little bit of review here. There was examples of good people going to Sheol in the Old Testament. There were, of course, as Joanna pointed out, examples of the evil people going there. And we concluded last week that in his ascension, Jesus took with him to heaven the righteous, those who were awaiting his coming, who were in Abraham's bosom. So maybe I'll use black for this. I only have two colors here. Got to use them wisely. Okay, so in Ephesians 4, the passage that's written up there, it says that when Jesus ascended, he led captive a host of captives. To heaven. And uh, really, the only place where you'd have captives who were on their way to heaven would be Abraham's bosom. They went with him to heaven, is what it seems like. He took with them to heaven. So Abraham's bosom was not heaven, it was the grave. It was a different place. It was kind of united to Hades, though there was a chasm that separated the two. They were still there. Heaven, of course, is the Father's house. Heaven, of course, is the uh, presence of the Father. This, Abraham's bosom, was the presence of Abraham. The, uh, the poor man, Lazarus, was comforted by Abraham. He wasn't directly comforted by God there. And yet, whenever he goes to heaven, he can be directly comforted by God. Okay, so that's the narrative as we see it, the Old Testament time period, what was going on when people would die. However, there's great news. Sheol is no longer the destination for those who die in Christ. So even though this was the case for people in times past, it's not the case for you. If you pass away today, you will not be like Lazarus going to Abraham's bosom. You have something far better for you than being with Abraham. You can go be directly with Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's look at a couple of passages that indicate this. 2 Corinthians 5 being the first one that we'll look at. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And now I just preached this earlier this year, so I know it's fresh on everyone's mind. It was only four months ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, going to look at verses 6 through 10. Someone read that for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 10. Jen, go ahead. All right, so again, hone in on verse 8. What does Paul say he prefers? He prefers to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. That's the Christian's hope. When you pass away, your body remains here. If you were, again, to die before Jesus returns, your body would remain here. And other people have to deal with that. But your spirit is immediately in the presence of the Lord. Your soul goes to be with the Lord Jesus. And I love the phrase that Paul uses, the term that Paul uses, at home. You go home. And there will be no doubt in that day when your spirit is present with its maker, your maker, that you are at home. If you die in Christ, you will be at home with the Lord immediately. Now turn forward just a couple of books in the New Testament to Philippians, and you'll see some similar language. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24. It's the same author, the Apostle Paul, the same subject, talking about death and what happens after death. Would someone please read Philippians 1, 21 to 24? You can read that for us. All right, so Paul had in his theology, in his system of belief, verse 23, that when he departs this earth, he's going to be with Christ. When he dies, he's going to be with Christ. I mean, this view is what can cause someone to say, verse 21, to die is gain. The world cannot say to die is gain. But the Christian can say, To die is gain. Because what do we lose when we lose this world? Yeah, we lose the fallenness of this world, the sin of this world, the stuff we've accumulated. Big whoop. And what do we gain when we die? Yes, the the true, full presence of Christ. And in a way, I mean, we have the true presence of Christ now but in a different way, without sin, seeing face to face. We will have that kind of experience with Christ. We will be absent from any sickness, any mourning, any weeping. It'll be amazing. It'll be an amazing thing. But the world doesn't have this hope. Only Christians have this hope. When a Christian dies, he does not go to Abraham's bosom. He goes to the presence of God. Anybody know what hallelujah means? (laughs) In a way, yeah, in a way. Hallelujah. We say it all the time, don't we? It means praise the Lord. It's a Greek word. It means praise the Lord. That's what that word means. And that's worth praising the Lord over, isn't it? You go to the presence of God when you die, if you're a believer in Jesus. Those who reject the gospel will go to a place of flame, agony, and torment, just as the rich man did. So when Jesus led captive his host of captives, according to Ephesians 4, it it was talking about those who were Abraham's bosom. From the best we can tell, that's what makes sense. Those who are in Hades remain in Hades, and we're about to see that. 
Hades hasn't been erased with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Hades has been untouched in that regard. People have not left Hades. Hades still exists. And so when someone dies apart from the Lord, someone dies outside of Christ, instead of going to the presence of God, instead of their spirit being with their maker, they are now in flame, agony, torment, conscious torment. The righteous judgment of God towards sin. And this is why we teach theology comprehensively like this. We've, we're on page 37 of notes right now. And if you've got your you know, stack of notes, you can go back through and see all kinds of theology that we've talked about. But if you go all the way back to page 5, if people have page 5, we talked about God's justice. We were talking about the attributes of God, the, not only the existence of God, but the attributes of God. And we talked about how God is just. And we said God's justice is perfect and inescapable. He is consistent and comprehensive. That means he's a good judge, right? Imagine if we switched out some of these words. God's justice is imperfect and escapable. That's not good. What if we said he is inconsistent and he's uncomprehensive? That's not good. Well, these words have consequences for what we believe. If we believe God is a thorough good judge, he brings justice to bear on everything in life, that means that outside of Christ, people will justly face the penalty for their sins. If they did not receive Jesus' payment for their sins, they have to pay the penalty for their sins. Uh, this is why if you ever listen to um, Ray Comfort, who does a lot of street evangelism, he shares videos on uh, YouTube. He's from New Zealand and he has the accent. He'll often use the courtroom illustration with people when he talks about their sin. He'll bring them to the Ten Commandments and say, well, well let's see if you're a sinner based on the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Jesus said, if you looked at a woman or a man to lust after him or her, you've committed adultery with that person already in your heart. So have you broken that commandment? Have you ever coveted anything? And it's like, stop, stop. You got me on the first one, right? You don't need to keep going. Uh, you've already got me. And then he says, God is our judge. He's the creator of all things, and he is a good judge. And we desire that. We want justice in this earth. Anytime a mass shooting happens, we want justice. Well, God's a good judge, and he will make sure there's justice. But Ray Comfort does a good job of saying, now let's focus on you. What does justice mean for you? And he walks him into the courtroom and says, God is there. Will you be guilty or innocent on judgment day? According to your own admission, you're a liar, you're an adulterer, you're, a co you're covetous, you're a thief, you've stolen things, you've used God's name in vain, you're a blasphemer. What does the good judge owe you? If he's a good judge, and the answer has to be, you will receive a penalty for your sins. Because of your rebellion, your open, willful rebellion against your creator, those things that you ought not to have done, you did. There must be a penalty. And the answer, of course, for how you can escape such a penalty is that someone comes along and pays the penalty in your place. God, because of the great love with which he loved us, gave his only son to die in our place for our sins. This is why 
believing that Jesus was a substitute on the cross is so important. There are a lot of people who don't want to use that language. Jesus was in our place that we deserved, paying the penalty that we owed, dying for us in our place for our sins, that if we receive the free gift that Jesus paid, then we can be declared innocent. Then God is still a good judge because Jesus paid it. It's not like he sweeps it under the rug and says, oh, don't worry about it, it's okay. He poured out his wrath on his son. Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God toward your sin. For those who are murderers, haters of their neighbors, child molesters and rapists, those who believe in Jesus, their sins are forgiven because Jesus was treated as each of those things for them in their place. And there's forgiveness for everybody who's got breath in their lungs. There's the opportunity of forgiveness because we recognize that Jesus paid what we owed. But we could never pay ourselves, what we could never work ourselves into. Jesus did it. That we could be righteous before God forever if we believe. So this is, again, heavy stuff that we're talking about. I prefaced last week by saying we're entering into heavy territory when we're talking about heaven and hell. But you have to know why we believe in the heaven and why we believe certain people are going there and why we believe in the hell and why certain people are going there. It all comes back to the gospel, doesn't it? Okay. Thoughts or questions on, on that? Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. That's exactly right. Okay. I didn't have a chance to go over my PowerPoint this morning, so each slide is like a surprise for me too, okay? <clears throat> All right, I uh, think this is a blank. It is. Neither heaven nor Hades is an eternal destination. So now here's another curveball for you. Maybe you've been swinging at these curveballs I've been throwing at you the last two weeks, and here's perhaps another one. Neither heaven nor Hades is an eternal destination. You say, what on earth? Well, here we go. Revelation. Let's turn to the back of the book. Revelation chapter 20. Let's look at this together. Revelation 20, starting at verse 11. We'll look at verses 11 to 15. We are arriving at the great white throne of God. So earlier in the passage that Mike read from 2 Corinthians 5, it said we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In that passage, Paul is talking to Christians, and he's saying, you will appear before Christ's judgment seat, and it's the place where Christians will receive rewards for what they have done in this life. That's what the uh, Tuesday morning Firmly Rooted group has been studying. We've been going through a book called Heavenly Rewards, talking about that. That judgment for Christians is not about salvation. You don't appear before the judgment seat of Christ to find out if you're going to heaven or hell. That's not what happens there. That's where rewards are determined. Now we're going to the great white throne in Revelation 20. And here, salvation is what's on the line. And uh, let's, let's read this. Um, someone read 11 to 15 for us, and then we'll break it down just a little bit. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. All right. So you have... Um, these two eternal destinations. I'll go ahead and uh, write them up here, even though we haven't talked about the new heaven and new earth yet. We'll talk about that here in a moment. 
Okay, and then you have lake of fire. Two places. Okay. Those who are at the great white throne judgment that we just read, they are judged according to their deeds. Or you could say their works. Judged according to works. How's that going to go for people? Yeah. Who, who could stand before God and say, I am righteous based on all my own effort? Nobody. New heaven and new earth, this for, for those who have faith in Christ. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Not according to their works. So people don't end up in heaven. People don't end up in the new earth because of their works. It's because of their faith in Jesus. It's because of the work of Jesus. Those who end up ultimately in the lake of fire are judged according to their works. And it says that these books are opened. And what a terrifying day this would be. To stand before the all-knowing one the one who is thoroughly, completely, eternally holy, and to have the books opened of your deeds. There's going to be no escape. This is that courtroom again, isn't it? There's no escape. There's no appeal. At this time, it's all done. And it says in verse 14 that the result is that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so death, Hades, and all outside of Christ go here. All who are outside of saving faith in Jesus, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, those who have died in their sins, they will end up in the lake of fire. They will be judged according to their deeds. But the passage goes on. We, ha- we have these chapters in our Bible. They didn't have these chapters originally. It just goes on. If any, verse 15, if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. And then look what comes next. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So, what happens here is those who have faith in Jesus Christ experience eternal bliss to the glory of God. Sadly, one of the things that gets taught in pop culture Christianity, pop culture theology, heaven is just like this place for us. Heaven is a place where we get to go, you know, hang out. And even people market hell that way or the lake of fire that way. 
there was a book, this has probably been close to 15 years ago now, a book that came out that was something like, I, I hope they serve beer in hell. You know, like this idea that hell is, you know, hell, heaven, doesn't matter where you go, it's just where we're going to hang out and God will give you what you want and you'll have a great time. There's no depiction of heaven or hell that way in Scripture, is there? The lake of fire is where people will experience the wrath of God, the conscious wrath of God forever and ever. If you look back up to Revelation 19, verse 20, Revelation 19, 20, this is getting into stuff that we haven't defined yet in this class, but it says, the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, and this is the part I want you to see, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Okay, now go to chapter 20, verse 10. So just a few verses down. Chapter 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And look at what this says. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is no annihilation in the lake of fire. It's not like you're just done, like God eliminates you and you're just done. You've, you've never met a mere mortal, as C.S. Lewis has said. All people will live on consciously forever somewhere. And here, the devil, the beast, the false prophet are going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then it goes right into the great white throne judgment of God. And those who end up in the lake of fire from that judgment will also be tormented day and night forever and ever. The end for all of those who are in Hades is the lake of fire. And now I want you to explain this in your own words. I've said this a few different ways already today, but knowing what you do about God, man, and salvation, explain why this is the case, that those who are in Hades will end up in the lake of fire forever and ever. Someone want to explain this in your own words? And who's truly a hellraiser at heart? Yeah, all of us. Okay. Yeah. And that's the problem, right? No scales. No. And that wouldn't help us. <laughs> that would that'd make it a lot worse for us. What'd you say, Mike? Yes, for believers, there is this element of you are judged by your works, whether good or bad. Just like Second Corinthians 5 said. It also says that in... Uh, Romans 14, verse 10. So there's 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and Romans 14, 10 that talk about the judgment for believers, that we will stand before our master. And uh, again, it's going to be comprehensive. It's going to be a thorough, consistent judgment, but it will not be with salvation on the line. Every sin has already been forgiven. And if we do see our sins in that day, we will see them as forgiven sins. That's what we just talked about this last Tuesday in our group. Um, there's a, also an opportunity we won't even see our sins that day. But we will only see what we've done for the Lord and then be rewarded accordingly. Stan? How do you get rid of guilt? 
Yeah. Well, ultimately, you can't. You can't get rid of your guilt. Um, you have no power to do that. I mean, we, we, and yeah, we know that, right? We try. Try to get rid of the, those things, and you can't. All you can do is press into the Lord and ask Him by His power to, to take it away. And that happens, of course, initially at salvation. And so you should, as a Christian, feel as though you are before God guilt-free because what Jesus has done. It is. You just have to keep preaching the gospel to yourself, going back and reminding yourself that Jesus died for every sin. He didn't leave some out for you to sort out on your own. He died for every sin. And so even if that's something that had far-reaching consequences, maybe you know, someone has done something so bad that generations down the line are affected by that. And later in life, that person comes to realize, I shouldn't have done that. That was sinful. That was awful. God takes care of it. You give it to God. You lay it at the feet of Jesus, and you give it to him. And you say, Lord, you know. I meant it for evil, but you can use it for good. Other thoughts or questions? Brandon. Yeah. Oh, good question. Good question. No. So it says um, in Genesis 15.6, okay, that's a good, good verse to have memorized, Genesis 15.6, how did Abraham end up somewhere that was positive after he died? Well, it says in Genesis 15.6 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was belief. Correct. So he didn't have the full message like we do today, right? But what did he have? He had this promise from God that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, that uh, his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of the sky, uh, that this land God had given to his descendants. Okay, so he had these promises. And from Genesis chapter 3, you have people looking forward to the Messiah. When the promise was made in the garden by God himself saying that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That puts in everybody's mind, there's coming a day when the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that ultimately happens in Jesus. But up until that point, they're looking forward to the coming Messiah. And based on their faith, they were, they were saved. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it was based on what God had revealed to that point. Yeah, good question. Yeah, Sarah. Okay, we will get there. It'll be a few months, but we'll get there. Okay, so you've got the beast and the false prophet. And these are um, just to summarize real briefly. In the end, when the tribulation time happens, the time of Jacob's trouble, the Old Testament calls it. Jesus called it a time unlike any other time that the world's ever experienced. When this happens, it's a seven-year period. First 42 months are bad, but the second 42 months are really bad. And you have these leaders who are wreaking havoc on the earth. So Mark of the Beast, you've heard of the Mark of the Beast. Um, that's a guy, the Beast. You have the Antichrist who's running things and calling people to be uh, allegiant to him. And they get a mark. And then you have uh, the false prophet also who's like a sidekick guy. And it, gets, it goes from bad to worse as you read through Revelation leading up to that 19th chapter. Yeah, good. And we won't be there, praise God. Amen.
Shane. Oh, undoubtedly, there will be many, yeah. Um, you know, those who don't take the mark are going to be killed. And uh, it, it's going to be quite the day. And, and you know, some people, when uh, technology advances and headlines come out about chips and stuff like that, people can get pretty worked up and say, they'll even say, this is the mark of the beast. You'll know it when it's the mark of the beast, okay? And like Mike said, if you're a believer in Jesus, you won't even be there for it. Uh, because uh, it says that Jesus is going to come and receive us to himself, take us to the Father's house, and we will be spared from the hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world. 1 Thessalonians 1 says Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. Right? So we won't be there for that. But uh, for those there, they're, they're going to know, and there's going to be so much pressure. I mean, you think about, even in our world today, how people can affect electromagnetic grids and stuff like that, and, and things get shut down. When you take away people's ease of access to food and things like that, things will change in a hurry. And uh, they'll say, hey, hey, get this sign on you so that way we know, you know, there's a bunch of confusion in the world. Get this sign on you and you'll be able to buy and sell and all that stuff. Um, it'll be pretty obvious. Yeah. But there will be people who lack faith who, who take it. Again, we'll get there eventually. Oh, it shut off on me. Okay, there we go. Uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 4 that we just looked at about heaven. Did you catch that it said, heaven will pass away? So you could call it the first heaven. That's my terminology. Uh, no, it's not. It's there in the verse. Okay, very good. I wasn't getting too far afield. Revelation 21, 1 says, the first heaven will pass away. All believers will enjoy eternity in the new earth. The blissful destination will be full of worship and adventure. And that's that's another thing that pop theology or pop Christianity gets wrong, is this idea that we're hanging out on clouds. The new earth isn't a cloud. We will be on the earth, the new earth. And you think there's going to be some interesting stuff going on on the face of the earth? There'll be animals, there'll be all kinds of cool things going on. And you've got a whole world to explore, and you've got God there with you, and, you've got, and we've got each other. It'll be a great time. The first heaven is where you go now if you die. So we talked about this one of these weeks here recently when you were gone. Last week or the week before, we talked about uh, can you point to heaven on a map anywhere? <laughs> you know, right, could you, uh, you know, was the Hubble telescope ever going to find heaven? Okay. Um, we, we don't have a lot of information about what that looks like. We do have indication, and we looked at a few passages where it talks about heaven being above. And that's kind of the way we all talk about it anyway. But Scripture itself says, coming down out of heaven. So there's this idea that heaven is up above. And as far as uh, you know, getting more detailed than that, we really can't. Okay? But, uh, but the first heaven will pass away, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, it's possible here that when it talks about the first heaven passing away that uh, it could just be talking about the atmosphere. We talked too last week about first, second, third heaven. The first heaven is the clouds with the rain. Second heaven is the location of the stars and the luminaries, the moon, the sun. Third heaven being uh, where you go when you die, the presence of God. Okay? The presence of God isn't going to pass away. All right? So that's not, a, that's not what's passing away. Perhaps it's meaning the, the environs. In uh, 1 Peter, no, 2 Peter chapter 3, it talks about that the celestial bodies will melt while they burn. It'll be, there'll be a fire that cleanses everything. 
okay? But the place where people go today when they die, um, that's going to change, where all believers are going to be together on the earth. Okay, that's, that's the big point here, is that all believers will be together on the earth. The new earth, yes. And there's a debate on whether it's this physical ball that will just be purged and we'll be back here, or if God's going to do a whole new creation. Can't really solve that riddle too much right now. Yeah, oh, well, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, other thoughts or questions at this point? Okay. All right. <clears throat> I, want to talk to, I want to talk to you about this now, I guess just introductory, because we have about 15 minutes left. From God's holy and sovereign point of view, how does a person end up in heaven or hell? Now, there's a reason why I set up the, the question that way. You know, I could have just said, how does a person end up in heaven or hell? I could have just said that. But now we're talking about from God's point of view and highlighting the fact that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. He's thoroughly holy. How does a person end up in heaven or hell? This is what I want you to start thinking about, and we'll get into it pretty deeply next week. But you can go ahead and look at page 38 if you've got that in front of you. I tried to get a little cute with the subtitle there. We're going to be talking about our choices and determining God's determinative choices. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Rough crowd today. Uh, so, Scripture presents that God makes determinative choices. He makes choices that affect us. He decides things. So now we have to think about how we're going to make sense of that a little bit. This comes down to the uh, you know, God's sovereignty versus human responsibility conversation. Maybe you've heard the theological terms Calvinism and Arminianism. It's that debate that we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. And uh, I'm going to offer you my point of view on these things. And it's not going to be easy. It's never been easy. There's a reason why Christians have debated each other and changed their views and moved all around the spectrum on how they think this works. It's because, uh, to a degree, we're June bugs trying to do quantum physics here. Okay, this is just really difficult. But at the same time, God's Word says a lot about these things, and we want to wrestle with it, and we want to see what we believe is going on, okay? So let's uh, get you started here with two main options. This is what you have at the top of page 38. There's semi-Pelagianism, which basically states that humans are born slanted towards sin, but they can cooperate with God. Adam's sin is not imputed because God's grace overrides it for all. I'll explain that in a moment. And then you have more of the Calvinistic perspective. These are both views named after men. So that's just sadly how it goes. Calvinism basically states that humans are born completely depraved, enemies of God, and legal recipients of Adam's sin and its effects. They are unable to please God at all. And this is kind of like two ends of the spectrum. Most people are going to try to define a place somewhere between the two. Okay? Um, eh, I don't know. A lot of Calvinists would heartily embrace that. 
But a lot of non-Calvinists would not go all the way to semi-Pelagianism. They tried to define something that falls short of that. So let's consider semi-Pelagianism. Humans are born slanted towards sin, but they can cooperate with God. That's probably at the heart of any kind of view that tries to maintain man's free choice. Um, People that want to protect the freedom of man to do whatever he wants can't say that man is unable to cooperate with God. They have to leave that door open. And and a lot of times you'll hear uh, gospel presentations from people who go more that direction who would say something like, Jesus is at the door knocking, just let him in. Taking that picture from Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is at the door knocking. It's up to you to let him in. There have been some preachers who have gone so far as to say what I consider to be blasphemous things, like even Jesus can't override your unbelief. At the end of the day, you're the one in control at at that point. Wow. So that's coming out of this kind of thinking. Um, the second half of that statement, Adam's sin is not imputed because God overrides it, or God's grace overrides it for all. Um, at this point, I think it would be helpful to contrast with Calvinism, where Calvinism says, look, all people are the legal recipients of Adam's sin and its effects. They are unable, there's an inability with man to please God in any way. Well, the people who don't want to take that view, would say something like, well, yeah, um, that's their natural way of thinking. Man is naturally selfish. Man is not naturally seeking to worship the God who is. However, God offers everybody grace. There's just like an even amount of grace distributed to people so that all people now have enough grace from God to make the decision of whether or not they will believe, whether or not they will cooperate with Him in salvation. The more Calvinistic side is going to say, no, that doesn't happen for everybody. Uh, God doesn't give a halfway grace that just makes people able to believe. But when God's grace comes to people, God's grace causes that person to believe. God saves that person. When His grace comes, it's going to be a saving grace. And all people who are recipients of that grace will be saved. They will have a profession of faith because God has reached down, turned the lights on, so to speak, awakened that person spiritually, caused that person to be born again. And so even though, from a Calvinistic view here, humans are born completely depraved, they are enemies of God, they're unable to please God at all, God in His sovereignty alone has chosen to save some of them. And that's why some believe and some don't. Clear? Well, hopefully you're sensing the spectrum a bit here, okay? Um, Where you basically, I mean, if we were going to boil it down real simply, you've got one camp that is most interested in protecting the free choices of man. And from their perspective, that makes it a lot easier to explain why sin exists, why suffering exists, why bad things happen in the world. It's because man's free choice. Then you have the other side that's looking to protect the sovereignty of God and saying, look, you can't say that God's in control of everything except when it comes to you know, anything. Because if God's not sovereign in everything, He's not sovereign at all. So that, those are the two 
sides there. And when it comes to salvation, we're all wrestling with this, aren't we? If you've ever tried to help someone become a Christian, if you've ever evangelized, I mean, if it was up to you, you'd just reach in and save that person and be done. You'd say your prayer at night and it'd be over. But that's not how it happens, is it? And so we wrestle with this. And even when we think about our own journeys and how we've become Christians, we wrestle with how much of this is on man and how much of this is on God. And God's Word says a lot about it. Yes. Yeah, so um, the Calvinistic view says, from all eternity, those who, have go- who are going to be saved have been chosen. All the way in eternity past, it is settled in the mind of God. I, I do need to say, most non-Calvinists are not going to take the Pelagius name. I, I said earlier, there's Calvinism and Arminianism. Most don't even want the Arminian name. They just will say they're non-Calvinists. And they won't word things exactly the way I've worded it, but they want to distance themselves from this. Okay. All right, so that's the first thing I need to say. Second thing is, it, it, it will vary. So there will be some congregations like ours, where you will have a mix of Calvinists and non-Calvinists. There are some congregations that almost define themselves by their position on this. Um, For example, Presbyterianism, traditional historical Presbyterianism, today you'll go to a Presbyterian church and encounter all sorts of wild behavior, and they're not a church at all. But um, like the Orthodox Presbyterian Church or the Presbyterian Church uh, in America, the PCA, they have in their founding documents very Calvinistic wording of salvation. And if you're joining that denomination, you're joining that theological view, essentially. And there will be some on the other side. There will be congregations more often in non-denominational churches like ours that will say we're not Calvinistic, and they might even put that in their doctrinal statement. And someone who is more Calvinistic would say, yeah, I wouldn't be comfortable joining there because, you know, I'm here. So it's an issue that's divided churches. It's an issue that has... Uh, guided denominations, um, but it doesn't have to. So, I guess all that to say, it depends. Yeah. Okay, good. Other thoughts or questions? Okay, well, let's see what else I got for you in the next five minutes here. Election comes from the word to choose. And we know this, right? Uh, We participate in elections. Translated literally, it means to call out. Election literally means to call out. And there are two passages that most clearly speak of God's election of individuals to salvation in Christ. Remember basic hermeneutics, that's how we interpret Scripture, and make a commitment to understanding the text. All right, so I'm kind of going back to Shane's question here about the, the Calvinistic view believes that From eternity past, God has chosen or elected certain individuals to salvation. In the mind of God, it's been settled from all eternity. Well, um, the difference that Calvinists and non-Calvinists have isn't on if election exists. The Bible talks about God's election, God's choice. The Bible talks about this, his predestination of individuals. It talks about it. The debate is on... How does it work? Not does it exist, but how does it work? Okay, so that's one thing I want to make clear to you. Second thing I want to make clear to you are the two passages that I have in mind here on this slide are the ones on your sheet on page 38. You've got Romans 8, 28 through 30, 
and you've got Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. We are not going to have time today to start on these, but I would like for you to read those this week. If I could give you an assignment, I've not really done that in this class. We call it school. I should probably give you an assignment. Uh, This is your assignment for next week. Read those, and as you do it, have a commitment to understanding what the text says. You want to know what the Bible says, what God has communicated. That means you remember basic hermeneutics. Words have plain meaning. The plain meaning of words. Don't try to look for hidden definitions or anything silly like that. You're looking to understand the intended meaning of the author. In this case, it's the Apostle Paul in both passages. In Ephesians 1, it's the start of the letter. So that one's great to start with. You don't have to look for context. That is the context. Ephesians chapter 1, right there, okay? And so I want you to look over those, and then next week we'll discuss them, okay? Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Yeah. All right, very good. Well, I'm going to pray, and then I have to shoot on over to the sound booth pretty quickly. So let's pray. God, again, we thank you so much for today and for your word, for this study. Help us to be comforted by the truths of your word and to serve you well today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.